Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. June has been a month of significant political and social turmoil, with inflation rising to its highest level in decades. I think Richard and Kerry can probably remember levels that high, but I might struggle. Industrial action in the courts and on the railways, confidence votes in the Prime Minister, by-election catastrophes, and all at the same time, in Wales, could the much-promised Senate reform proposals beyond the rocks already. Tonight we're going to look back on quite a tumultuous month, picking out these points uh, with what you might have missed and what we can look forward to in July. And joining me to do so is Richard Martin. Hello, Rich. Hello, all. And Kerry Davis. Hello, Kerry. Evening, Matt. Evening, Rich. So we should probably start uh, with some of the big ticket items from the last month. Shall we start with the by-elections? Kerry Davis, the Conservatives lost both of them, with the Liberal Democrats winning the one in Tiverton and the Labour winning one in Wakefield. Was that at all a surprise to you? Neither came as a surprise for me, Matt. Um, Wakefield should never have gone Conservative at the last election, but um, I think there was an element of Labour taking such a seat for granted. Tiverton, Tiverton sorry, and Honiton, um, how the Conservatives have managed to lose that, I think, is causing some soul-searching in the party. I think if we refer back to our last chatty pod and our Conservative guest there, I think we very much saw that the, the rank and file of the Conservatives were very, very unhappy. And I think it really took those uh, by-elections to prove that, although... The vote of confidence in the leadership in the Conservative Party earlier in June showed that all was not well. What were the figures, Matt, for both of those? What were the swings? So the Tiverton election is the biggest majority that's ever been overcome in a by-election of about 20... The previous majority was about 24,000, so there's never been a, a bigger swing against a, an incumbent party in a by-election bigger than Tiverton. Interestingly, the Liberal Democrats were in third in Tiverton in the last election and actually came through to win this, which I think speaks more to the sort of tactics of the Lib Dems being able to um, win in those kinds of seats, those sort of sort of rural, middle English kind of seats that it's easier for them to win in those kind of settings than, than Labour. It's interesting you said on Wakefield, actually, Kerry. I was going to pick at Wakefield a little bit. So the majority in Wakefield now following that election is 4,925. So that is uh, the biggest Labour majority in that seat since the 2005 general election. So the majorities in Wakefield were getting smaller and smaller in that period. And then the, the Conservative majority in the 2019 election uh, was actually sort of 3,358. So the Tories had a big majority in 2019 and the Labour Party had had for a good few elections before that. But yeah, I think it's very interesting what happened in, in Wakefield there. But obviously, I think the circumstances are so much more important in both those by-elections than actually what Labour or the Liberal Democrats are doing nationally in order to try and win those seats. Rich, did you take anything from those by-elections? Coming from a Welsh point of view, I think one of the interesting things, of course, the overarching narrative is that Conservatives are losing ground to the Lib Dems in uh, rural seats in a way that doesn't necessarily directly translate to Wales, because, of course, in those rural seats in England, you know, the Lib Dems are the only real contenders, where in Wales, of course, depending on where you are in Wales, if you're on the eastern side, on the border side of Wales, then yes, it is the Lib Dems, and you're looking at poets who talked a lot about Bracken and Radnorshire, and um, uh, I always get this wrong, uh, what is it, Simaldoin? 
um, okay. Montgomeryshire, and on the west coast is uh, you know you, you're talking about Ply Cymru being you know the rural opposition to the Conservatives there. So I think it's quite interesting. I was listening to the ever-excellent Sunday Supplement on Radio Wales on Sunday morning. Russell Goodway was talking there about how the Lib Dems are back in business at the vanguard of the anti-Tory coalition, which is you know, largely expected now to form ahead of the next UK-wide election. But of course, it is very complicated in a number of places in Wales, like you would expect Lib Dems to surge back in Brecon and Radnorshire and in Montgomeryshire. You would not expect them to challenge even remotely again in the urban seats like Cardiff Central, you know, all of those urban seats. There are no Labour Lib Dem battles for constituencies in Wales anymore. But what happens in Ceredigion, for example, where the Lib Dems held the seat for a number of years, Ply Cymru, and now hold the seat, the Tories have done well, you know, historically in recent times in that seat. So does that become a applied Conservative marginal, or do the Lib Dems come back in, you know, thanks to the the weight of the party's success in England, sort of bleeding over through the news and political headwinds coming across from that way. The the most complicated seat in Wales is Unis Morgan, which is a Labour-plied Conservative three-way tie, more or less. And what will happen there in, you know, if, if we were to see these kinds of results go forward, does that become, does that revert to being a Labour seat or do Ply Cymru manage to do what they are consistently doing in the Senate and take the seat at, um, for the Westminster Parliament? And of course, all of this is tied together with the potential for boundary reform, which we've talked about, seem to be talking about for an awfully long time, but it still doesn't seem to be any closer to happening. But at this point, and particularly with these results in mind, one does wonder if the UK government, as it is at the moment, or the Conservative Party, would be keen to have a general election without those boundaries being redrawn, which are largely expected to slightly tilt the uh, balance away from the Labour Party in England towards the Conservative Party. Yeah, it's very interesting that I, I don't think you'll see a general election before those boundaries have, have come in, I, especially the way they're polling at the minute. I don't think the Conservatives would be very sensible to do so. I think that they would wait until they have that built in advantage due to the reformed boundaries. Even there, though, I have heard a number of people talking about how the fact that there is discontent among the, there are some conservatives sitting in Westminster who would be directly affected by those boundary reforms. You know, some of the ones, who, for example, in Wales at the moment would lose their seats as a result of those reforms. So it's not a case of the party necessarily just acting in its immediate interest. There are some people that will in their party that will um, struggle with it. So it's not a, a simple decision, I think, for the UK government to just move ahead with those recommendations because there will be some pushback from an already discontent party. So nothing is easy. Sure, but that's what the House of Lords is for. That's what knighthoods are for. That's what ambassadorships are for. That's that's it's the nature of the game, unfortunately, that if you are the risk of losing your seat and you don't get selected again, why don't you go to the sit in the House of Lords? Taking the Welsh seats sort of piece by piece, yes, for those who don't know, we've had so many discussions in our Hiroith little group chat about what we think would happen in, in Brecon and Rantashire and Montgomeryshire. I, I think you could see a way that the Liberal Democrats start to challenge again in those seats. I think especially if you look at the local elections in Powys where the Lib Dems are now the largest group and friend of the pod, James Gibson Watt, is now the leader of Powys County Council. Yeah, you can see a way in which the Conservatives may be a bit worried about those seats. 
And I think Brecon and Rubbish are probably more so than Montgomeryshire. The majority of Montgomeryshire is now sort of 12,000. Uh, and that's not to say having, you know, seen these by-election results, that's not insurmountable now. But I do think that when the Liberal Democrats don't have the ability to concentrate their resources like they do in by-elections, they may struggle to overcome majorities of that size. So whilst I think that there's a very good chance that the Liberal Democrats could become serious challenges again in those seats, I don't necessarily think they'll win them. With regards to Ernest Morn, I am becoming more and more of the opinion that after the next general election, that will still be a Conservative seat. I think Ernest Morn does not like voting out incumbent MPs. And I think if you look at the likelihood of the fact that whether you agree with nuclear power or not, the very likely chance that oil and airwith will be built uh, and the potential for jobs and economic investment that that could bring to the area which of which Virginia Crosby has been a significant cheerleader, I think you can see a way in which she does keep hold of that seat. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to dig out my prediction alert klaxon from the last podcast once more. Prediction warning, prediction warning. But if you can put the prediction klaxon back on now. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're going back to Keridigion. I forgot about Keridigion. Uh, I don't see the Liberal Democrats coming back in Keridigion because, because the Conservatives have now so consistently come second in that seat across UK general elections and Senate elections. You would don't need to be the, the sharpest played Cymru strategist to put out leaflets saying it's us or the Tories here, uh, which I think might motivate more Liberal Lib Dems uh, into voting Clyde in order to keep the Tories out. So I can't see Lib Dems being able to have a resurgence in Kerry Diggy on. Kerry, you're our, um, our radar in uh, the borderlands. Uh, what do you think? Lib Dem revival or nay? Yeah, I, I think uh, Brecon and Radnor will be their number one challenge seat for the next general election. And I think at the moment it will go back Lib Dem quite easily. Uh, different of opinion to Matthew there. And I also think they could go with, uh, yeah, there's some strong people locally, but a name they've got and some quality people they've got in uh, Bill Powell, even James Gibson Watt. And uh, you might hear it here first. I think uh, we might have an ex-Welsh AM uh, education minister who might be a little bit bored and be looking for a new challenge by the time of the next election. Let's, let's follow that one with interest and see if Kirsty will actually come on the pod and uh, tell us a little bit about her plans. But I, I, I think Brecon and Radner, if we had an election tomorrow, would be Lib Dem. I agree with Matt on his scepticism around uh, Montgomeryshire, but it was Liberal for a long time. I think those would be the two focus areas for the Lib Dems in Wales to concentrate resources. But I want I want to move away from the wider England UK elections. But before we do, Matt, if we did have that election tomorrow, and you mentioned some of the scores in Wakey, would Labour be in power after an election tomorrow? If you were taking it on a very strict reading of what you've just asked me, Kerry, is the swing in Wakefield sufficient for Labour to win a majority? Yes, I think it is, but a very, very small majority. I don't think that if there was an election tomorrow, Labour would be able to form a majority in government. Uh, and I also think they would struggle struggle to form a coalition with the Lib Dems if the price of that was something like electoral reform. I don't think that would be the, the likely outcome either. So we're still quite a way away from me being able to hand on my heart say that I think Labour are going to win the next general election or be able to at least form a government after it. Okay, I think that's fair. So UK has had uh, by-election fever, but in Wales, it's really been one topic 
at the races this month. And I think we've looked at it with the Jess Blair pod. Um, and I think we will look at it at next month too, because it's not turning out to be as simple and as straightforward as perhaps those who support it want. But uh, Senate reform. Now, when we chat, you two uh, generally go, go to town on this. But Rich, where do you think we are now? And are you pleased that Chris Bryant and Nia Griffiths local parties have uh, joined the party? We all expected um, or were aware of the fact that there was pushback from um, certain members and certainly not all members, but certain members of the Parliamentary Labour Party um, with, you know, from seats in Wales about these proposals. I'm kind of curious about the details of some of the votes that we've seen published. I was surprised that, again, that those CLPs that have voted against the proposals went public with it. So quickly and so brazenly because you know normally when political parties disagree on something they try to have those arguments behind the scenes wherever possible so it's quite telling that those CLPs and the people the influential figures have decided to forefront the disagreement presumably with the idea of trying to put some pressure on the Welsh government to and potential delegates at special conference to change course my instinct, certainly having spoken to a few people in and around the Senate, is that there is enough optimism that it will still go through. The question is, and we talked about this before, this is a this is a potential sea change moment where the weight of power in Wales, in the Labour Party, has for a hundred years sat with the MPs. And we are now seeing that potentially an expanded Senate with uh, potentially expanded powers and um, members of that Senate who have perhaps a greater role in the public consciousness are starting to hold more of the keys to power. And you know, it's obvious that there are some MPs who like the old ways uh, unhappy about that. And the question is, is the party with them or not? And that we don't know at the moment. We'll find out after special conference. But I think if you look at it just in terms of the facts on the ground, who is more popular in Wales? If you held a straw poll of members of the public or straw poll certainly of the members of the Labour Party that I'm aware of, the Welsh Labour Party would come out far more popular than the UK Labour Party. So I think people in Wales would be more happy to see more power held by uh, Welsh Labour members of the Senate. But I would still, oh, I'm going to have to put the prediction siren on again now. Oh my God, unbelievable. I still think it will go through and I don't think we're going to have a conference that is as febrile as the infamous one that Matt has referred to on a number of occasions ahead of the One Wales Agreement. But I do think we're going to see some lingering resentment from certain quarters about the direction of travel. And whether that becomes a campaign that lasts for a long time or whether it's just limited to a few individuals, that seems to be the way it's going. But I will always defer to our good colleague, um, Matthew Hexter, on these matters. So I agree with you, broadly speaking, that I think it will pass. I disagree with you on the fact that I don't think it'll be as feisty a conference. I do think this will be a quite febrile conference. I think that there's significant potential for it to be quite an unpleasant conference in terms of some of the speeches that you'll hear made. No, we're not, no one else will hear made, but the delegates to the conference will hear made. So I, I think that there's a lot of very strong feelings on this one way or the other, and I can see it becoming quite feisty in the hall. You, Rich, you've, you know, you've sort of touched on the, 
the constituency Labour parties, the CLPs that have voted against that, and that's most prominently the Ronda CLP and Clinetley CLP who voted against it. I mean, we've seen Caffili CLP back it, and I, from my understanding, most CLPs, from my understanding, will, will, will back this proposal. The big news that made everyone start to feel as if this might not be as smooth sailing as was previously thought was not the CLP news, but the news that three very significant trade unions will not back the uh, the proposals. That's the GMB, USDOR and Community Union are all against the proposals. Uh, they claim that's because any such proposal of this kind will make it significantly harder for there to be a Labour government, Labour majority government in Wales. A number of the trade unions do not think of Plaid Cymru as, as natural bedfellows. They think that Plaid Cymru will be willing to enter into uh, coalition arrangements with the Conservative parties and keep Labour out of power. I know we. I think we're all on record of not really thinking that's the case, but certain people within the trade union movement believe that to be the case. Also, in their explanation for why they're against the move, they they do say um, that they think that this would make it harder for them to support the candidates they support. I'm paraphrasing now because I can't imagine. I can't remember quite exactly what they said, but it would make it harder for them to to for the, them to support the candidates that support them in and into getting elected. Basically, they, because of the lack of clarity about how this closed list will work, it will make it significantly harder for trade unions to put their candidates into prominent places, something that's happened historically uh, a lot. So, I, And I think that whilst, yes, they do have some concerns over the, the electoral system, I think the major thing they're concerned about is them not being able to put the candidates that they want into the Senate, and that is really why they're against this move. From what we can tell, there are a number of MPs against the proposal, as you said, Rich. The only one that I've seen to make any sort of overture in, in support is Beth Winter um, towards the plans. I don't think members are particularly happy with the plans, to be perfectly honest, for a number of reasons. I don't think they think that the system proposed is particularly democratic because it restricts voter choice uh, with the closed lists. And I also think that they don't think that the way that these plans have been arrived at are particularly democratic because they, it, it does feel to a lot of people that this is a sort of backroom deal that Labour members won't be able to suggest amendments to, but will have to take it either completely or, or not at all. Um, so I do know there's a significant amount of Labour members who, who are unhappy about the plans, whether that's because they'd want to reject it completely or they would like to see it amended. But I think that we've had this conversation, all of us before, and we had this conversation with Jess as well. If it is a take it or leave it scenario, I think probably at this stage, you, you do sort of have to say we'll take it. But I do know that there's a significant amount of people within the party and within the Labour movement more broadly who are not happy with these plans. And I do think it will probably pass, but it will not be as smooth sailing as we previously thought. Yeah, just, just picking up on that, there are two sort of interesting questions that I think have come out of the process. And, and, and of course, as Jess mentioned in the pod the other uh, week, I think we all have to sort of bear in mind that it was the the proposal that is on the table is the one that the Labour Party wanted in terms of voting systems, which appears now to be the, in theory, appears to be the um, the problem for a number of these CLPs. I mean, you know, whether that's actually the case or whether it's just a, a handy thing with which to beat the proposals to try and bring them down more generally. But two, two interesting questions that cropped up in my head is that not all, but some Labour members of the Senate are also members of the Cooperative Party. 
How will that be handled in a closed list system? Will everybody be joint members of the Labour Party? Or will none of them have to stand as Labour corporate members and they just have to stand as Labour members? Because that has to be outlined because you vote for the party and not the individual. And I think, secondly, and it is a little bit unfair because this is a member of the Senedd in their very first term, but I think the role of Buffy Williams in the vote in the Ronda is very interesting to those who like to observe the power dynamic within the Labour Party in Wales, because in the Ronda, you have a well-established MP who was, I don't think there's an easy way to say this, parachuted into the constituency in the 90s without any long-term roots in the Ronda, who has since gone on to be a an incredibly popular parliamentarian with his own constituency of electors. In the CLP vote, it is said that the vote was unanimous, so all that voted, however many there were, voted against the proposals. But it's also said that Buffy Williams um, vote didn't participate in the vote, even though she's a member of the CLP. Now, it does make you wonder why somebody that voted in favour of these proposals in the Chamber, in the Senate, just a week or so before, then didn't even express a voice in her own CLP. And I think that that fairly unsubtly illuminates where there is a residual power dynamic between the members of the Senate and the members of the Parliament in Westminster. I'll take that second question first. There's a thought in my mind that I'm not sure that I can say for certain which way this goes. And I think that's something that if we have um, listeners who are members of the Labour Party in the Ronda, they may be able to tell us more about. So constituency meetings of the Labour Party, and I'm sorry, this is going to get a bit technocratic now. So constituency Labour Parties have either they either meet as AMMs or member meetings in which everyone who attends is able to vote or they um, they they meet as GC general committees. Uh, which have a delegate structure in which the elected representatives tend to act ex officio, i.e. they don't vote. So I don't know whether the Londa uses an all-member meeting system or it uses a delegate structure. That may illuminate why Buffy may have not voted. And even in uh, all-member meeting structures, often elected representatives. So I, I don't know is the honest answer why that, but that may be a reason why that's the case. Um Going back to the first question uh, on the Cooperative Party, again, I don't know is, is the honest answer, but it, when Labour Party candidates stand as Labour and Cooperative candidates in multi-member scenarios, i.e. in local authority elections, the rule has always been from the Cooperative Party, either all of you stand as Labour and Cooperative members or, or none of you do. Again, I don't know, and as you know, for my sins, not being a member of the Cooperative Party, I cannot tell you the, the feeling within the Cooperative Party at the moment of how that would work. But I, it would feel weird for me if you didn't have a scenario where in the six seat constituencies, if you didn't have complete rows of Labour and Cooperative candidates or just Labour candidates, it would feel very out of step with what is usually done. So I would assume that would be the case, Rich. Just because I, I think, having just recently been in a multi-party election and the difficulties it provides, and looking, for some reason, at previous candidates for various things, I actually think, before an election, candidates in Labour and Cooperative Party, which annoys me no end because you can only join it if you are a Labour member, so it's irrelevant. But um, I think they resigned from the Cooperative Party and rejoin once elected. Yeah, if any listeners want to clarify how it works, but 
I think we've done a lot. I, th- I think the, the big, um, it is political, but the big social stuff which is going around at the moment is obviously the cost of living crisis and what's that causing in industrial unrest. So we've seen in recent weeks, Mick Lynch become the proposed future of the Labour Party. But uh, the RMT and their actions in the last week have really come to the fore. We're recording today when I think uh, barristers uh, are on strike and I think there's predictions of a summer of discontent with at least BA workers going on strike, much to the chagrin of David Lammy and his side of the Labour Party, who would by no means support them under any circumstances. To be honest with you, Matt, I'm looking at you here, but, you know, the Labour Party seems to have got itself in all kinds of mess on whether to support or not industrial action. Would you agree? So, first and foremost, solidarity with the workers of the RMT and the barristers who have, decision, who have taken the decision to go on strike this last few weeks. All power to their elbows. The Labour Party's position on this in the UK is nothing short of appalling, Kerry. Absolutely appalling. David Lammy uh, on TV the other day said he would not support those strikes. Um, I think he was speaking specifically about, well, about the RMT strikes, but also about upcoming uh, potential strike action taken by BA workers in Heathrow who are fighting the fact that during the pandemic they had 10% of their wages taken away from them. Um, they are now have taking industrial action in order to try and get their pay back to where it was. It is not a pay rise. It is a restoration in pay. Strikes are always the, the last course of action. They should never be necessarily gone to as an immediate action uh, because they have real consequences for those who go on strike. And I you know speaking to, to people in this, in this chat, and I'm sure people have listened are listening to us now who, who understand the real world consequences of going on strike and how much that can negatively affect you. After Wes Streeting came out in support of the RMT industrial action and then was quickly reprimanded behind the scenes for doing so to the point where he had to issue an apology, I think that is a Labour Party scared of its own shadow so much in the UK that it feels like the UK populace is completely against this industrial action, whereas I think you see more and more workers feeling as though they need to join a union the, the the amount of people searching how to join a union in the last few weeks has gone is is you know increased by over 100 percent. i think there's people in real real worry about their economic future economic confidence is at the lowest point it's been for an incredibly long time real wages are not going up the cost of living is you know is hurting everybody inflation is its highest level for, for god knows how long and we're going to see this happen more and more. You're going to see more and more industries feel the need to take industrial action. And I think that the Labour Party should do what Mick Lynch has done, which is stand up for what it believes in, make the reasoned, intelligent argument for why people would do this and why they may be doing it. But instead, they're retreating into what they believe is the populist position in order to try and you know, maintain its very slim lead in the polls against an incredibly unpopular Conservative Party. They, they unfortunately allow the narrative to be shaped by the UK Conservative Party that positions Labour as being responsible for the RMT train strikes. The RMT are not an affiliated union of the, of the Labour Party. I'm very glad to see 
lay rare masses on those picket lines uh, as long as well as plug camera masses don't worry i, I saw them too uh, on the picket lines alongside rmc workers uh, striking and one thing that really annoyed me was david lammy saying that no sensible party of government would support the strikes well you know you saw welsh labor ministers on those picket lines does he think that welsh labor government is not a sensible party of government I think, I think the UK Labour Party could learn an awful lot from the Welsh Labour government on how to win elections and to, to fight for what they believe in. I, I just think it's a terrible set of affairs from the UK Labour Party and they should really, really not only morally think about what they're doing, but also think that if they are going to say that workers should not strike, uh, workers who, by the way, who are represented by the GMB and Unite in BA's case, two of the biggest supporters to the Labour Party, they're not going to back those workers. Why should Unite and the GMB continue to back the Labour Party? It's, a, it's not only a morally stupid decision, it's an economically inept one too. Well, I'll, I'll defend David Lammy. I'm sure that David Lammy um, doesn't hold that negative view of uh, the Welsh government at all, probably because he doesn't even realise they exist, um, because, you know, Wales is largely invisible to the PLP in many regards. I, I think the, the one interesting thing that I would note out of this and, and is that I think that there are parallels, um, but also differences between the potential industrial action of the BA workers and that of the barristers. And I think one of the interesting things that we see here is uh, that the reason why the barristers are striking is because of the continuing cuts to legal aid. Um, which are basically driving down the pay for, you know, it tends to be junior barristers that do a lot of legal aid work. And the number of hours that are involved means that, you know, some of them are looking at minimum wage or below minimum wage for the work that they're doing. Now, they don't, they're, they're not unionised. There is no union for the barristers, and it's not the kind of thing that particular profession is a big fan of. But in the Welsh context, I think this continues to be rather like the, the uh, RMT strikes, something that people in Wales will suffer the negative consequences for, for actions that are taken by a government out with Wales itself. Because the, the reason why legal aid is being cut and cut is because that's an agenda of successive UK governments. And Wales has no say in the way that legal aid is provided in Wales because brings out there should be another klaxon for this one because we're part of the English uh, England and Wales legal jurisdiction, which is essentially the English legal jurisdiction. You know, Wales is still very much just a pocket of this other legal jurisdiction over which the Welsh government has little say whatsoever. And this again illustrates why there is no an increasingly good case for questioning that position. You know, why should um, ordinary citizens and legal professionals in Wales suffer as a result of another government's decision, which is a party that has not been chosen by the people who live in Wales? And I think every time that there's something like this blows up, it just should question the structural problems that exist with this weird historical artifact that is the England and Wales ju legal jurisdiction. There are those that argue that the cost or the potential disruption from creating a Wales-only legal jurisdiction outweigh the potential benefits. That is a possibility on a purely financial basis, but there is a democratic deficit in the fact that people in Wales do not get the legal representation and the legal structures designed by the people that they vote for. 
But Northern Ireland was part of this same legal jurisdiction not that long ago. In the early 1990s, the legal jurisdiction was separated, and I think in 2010, powers for that legal jurisdiction were transferred to the Northern Ireland Assembly. There's no reason why it couldn't happen here, and it might cost a little bit more ultimately to administer two rather than one. But what it would do is that it would clean up responsibility hugely for what takes place in each legal jurisdiction. It would stop the absurdity of Welsh law applying to England and Wales, but only territorially in Wales, and English law applying to England and Wales, but only territorially in England, which is a ridiculous complication anyway. But mostly, we would end up having, you would hope, the same kind of response with practitioners to the Welsh government that we have seen with the railways, in that I, you know, almost my entire rail journey, which I do almost every day of the week, I've been able to carry on as normal during the strikes because there has been the now infamous social partnership approach, which we may or may not return to in a future podcast. And you would hope that even though there is a world of difference between barristers and railway workers in terms of the way that they approach their industrial relations, you would hope that the Welsh Government would be able to replicate a similar type of approach. Now, uh, that might be unnecessarily optimistic of me, but I think that one of the things of the, of the many complexities of these various strikes, I think that is one that I think we are going to continue to suffer in Wales asymmetrically for, because as with the RT strike, people in Wales are suffering, you know, commuters in Wales are suffering um, as a result of the strikes, even though there is no dispute in Wales, we're suffering because of the decisions of the government in England because you know, the railways are managed on an England and Wales basis if, or UK-wide basis, and similarly with the legal system. People in Wales potentially are suffering here, not because anything the Welsh government is doing, but because that what the UK government is doing in respect of England, including Wales, in legal space. So I, I guess I'm arguing that things could be better if we were able to change some of these structural problems. Uh, and that's not necessarily to say that that necessarily means the end of the United Kingdom, You know that people can interpret it that way if they wish, or they could just interpret it as the United Kingdom working better. And I think that's probably where, at the very the minimum, we should all be uh, aiming for. We've all had this lovely, long, depressive chat. So should we turn to something really happy and uplifting? Kerry, what's going on with Brexit? It was uh, this week, it was, you know, it ended last week. It was six years since uh, Britain voted to leave the EU. Uh, there was meant to be some big changes happening to our border infrastructure, but that was cancelled, wasn't it? So what's going on with Brexit? And... Where are we with everything that's going on since Britain voted to leave the EU? Well, I think you're right there. I think 1st of July was meant to be a big date for changes to import controls, but that was abandoned in April by uh, Mr Rees-Mogg um, because it wasn't going to happen. I don't think the country was prepared, didn't have anything in place. But six years, it has flown by. And I think for me personally, and I'm sure... Uh, you two will comment on various trade trade agreements we have or may not have had. But where I was with Brexit, and one of the reasons why I really didn't want to uh, vote to leave, is that what I thought would happen, and I think I've mentioned it on the pod before, has come to happen. You know, 40 years of integration was not going to be uh, unpicked and put back together again in the, the short space of time we had. So I think we are left with, you know, I, I've spoken to a few quite noted 
Brexiteers on social media and trying to get an honest answer for them. And I think they still believe in it, but they are absolutely aghast about how much of a mess the process has become. I think a lot of us saw that as part of the issue with Brexit, is that what we were trying to do wasn't going to be quick, it wasn't going to be simple, and it would take a generation or more. And I think we are in that position now. I'm going to throw this back at you, Matt, because one of the things I dislike in politics is people not speaking their mind and being candid. And we had a very close to a candid Labour politician in recent weeks when Cardiff North MP Anna McMorrin said or was recorded being quite candid about her view on Brexit and that, you know, things would change if Labour were in power. And this quickly rolled back once the whips got involved to, no, didn't mean that, it was et cetera, et cetera. This is the politics I hate. I want people to tell us what they think and what they stand for and stand by those convictions. And I I think Labour's still in a problem with Brexit. What was your thoughts on where we are with it all and how the parties are dealing with it? Oh, the Labour Party position on Brexit. Okay, so uh, I see we've cleared four hours from the recording schedule just for this, yeah? It's a a two-minute response, please, gents. (laughs) Anna McMorrin, who has got the healthy majority she has in Cardiff North, because in 2019 she was probably one of the most pro-Remain, most pro-second referendum UK Labour candidates there was. It's stuff like that and areas like Cardiff's North rejection of Brexit that means that whilst she at least makes the right overtures to being pro-Remain and the Conservatives continue along with being pro-Brexit, the Conservatives will struggle to win seats like Cardiff North back. On Labour's position on Brexit, I, I cannot see Labour even moving in towards a, a, a more pro-integration argument for a, a good while yet. I still think they think it's... Um, a significant problem for them in the kind of seats they want to win back. You know, you've seen Keir Starmer in the last few weeks make statements that under Labour there would be no return to freedom of movement. And I don't think those are genuinely held beliefs, uh, primarily because when Keir Starmer stood to be the leader of the Labour Party, he, in one of his 10 pledges to do so, talked about how we want to protect free movement. Obviously, his line is that since we're no longer in the EU, EU free movement is gone, so there's nothing to protect. It's almost like the UK government are getting away with doing whatever they want on Brexit because there's not a strong enough opposition voice to, to hold them to account to that because they believe that even criticising the UK government on what they're doing with the powers they've got after Brexit is seen to be pro-EU and pro-rejoining the EU. So I don't think you'll see a, a more you know rejoin, remain kind of platform from the Labour Party for a significantly long time. And I also think, for what it's worth, the Lib Dems have been burnt significantly by their rejoin, uh, their, their sort of second vote platform. And I think if they're targeting these true blue rural constituencies in Middle England, they're not going to be making a rejoin argument in the next general election either. We'll see what Plaid and the SNP do, etc. But I can't see any of the uh, larger UK parties making that argument. That's that's exactly what I was going to say. Essentially, the only parties that can stand on a pro-EU um, platform these days are Plaid Cymru and the SNP, because in their small, smaller constituencies, their smaller territories, those are still very much largely pro-EU territories. And referring back to uh, people 
far more intelligent than I who've studied, studied national identity uh, in depth over the last few years. Those, both the Scottish and the Welsh-speaking Welsh national identities are tend to vote very heavily to be pro-EU. So, yeah, I, I think it is, it is fascinating how essentially the UK government is acting on almost all Brexit legislation or Brexit-related legislation unopposed because the UK Labour Party is doing sort of reenacting that that kind of metaphor that I think was used by Tony Blair originally, which is, you know, carrying the party is carrying a priceless Ming vase of, over a very well-polished floor um, because they're terrified of dropping it and literally doing one thing like supporting rail strikes or being even vaguely pro-European is considered to be you know, a potential election loser for them. And I think that's, I mean, that's probably testament to how fragile the party feels about its own platform at the moment. Maybe that will change over time. But where we particularly feel it in Wales is that the UK government has enacted already through the Internal Markets Act, also will enact in the future, quite interesting legislation that will challenge the ability of the Senate to legislate in Wales um, on matters such as uh, environmental um, legislation and various other things, through the, the UK government is acting through the prism of post-Brexit legislation, but some of that is not being opposed to the level that you would expect it to be by the Labour Party in London, despite the fact that it will obviously have serious implications for the way the Labour Party in Wales is able to govern, and and that is. Again, it's a faulty dynamics, a structural problem with the way that the United Kingdom works at present that is going to not only disproportionately negatively affect potentially people within Wales, but also it disproportionately affects the Welsh Labour Party, the Welsh Welsh Labour Party uh, that is in government in Cardiff Bay because it can't do what it would like to do. And it's being tacitly opposed by the behaviour of the PLP in London. So, yeah, fascinating, you know, the post-Brexit landscapes. So... I think, you know, it has been a very hectic uh, month, June, with everything that's gone on at a UK level and what we've talked about at the Wales level. We've obviously still got quite a, a horrendous situation, really, in Ukraine. Um, and uh, this week, COVID cases are increasing dramatically. And uh, I note that in healthcare settings, the compulsory use of masks has been uh, reintroduced. But has there been anything else you two have picked up on in, in Wales that may have passed listeners by? What what, what might have been missed? Uh, there's just one thing. We, we haven't got time in it in the pod that uh, today to talk about it. But I, I think we should just bring to everybody's attention that Jeremy Miles, as Education Minister, has been spectacularly busy uh, so far in this Senate term. Just to name a few things that we may me and hopefully will circle back to in future pods. Um, the Welsh Government has launched Tithe, which is its successor scheme or a scheme to try and fill the void that has been left by the uh, pan-EU Erasmus uh, scheme to allow students from elsewhere in Europe um, to come to Wales and from for students from Wales to go elsewhere in Europe. Um, and this is slightly extends the eligibility criteria for that scheme. So it means that hopefully we might see more uh, students leaving Wales to travel um, elsewhere in the world. That has just, just launched, um, but I think there are some question marks about how 
long-term commitment that is on behalf of the Welsh Government. There's also the tertiary education bill, um, which I think, has that been laid, Matt? Um, so that had its, I want to say, third and fourth stages last week. There were over 100 amendments during stage three of that bill. Uh, it was quite, quite a sitting. So yeah, I believe that's had its fourth stage now. And so that's going to bring in um, some very interesting uh, new, uh, it's going to set up a new commission and bring in some very interesting dynamics in uh, tertiary education in Wales. And also, uh, I think it also rather tellingly leaves the research funding um, for H uh, higher education in Wales uh, in slightly uncertain territory um, sort of compared to the other UK nations, Wales has not done as well in terms of attracting research funding or investing in research. Also, and I think that, you know, obviously there was a lot of news that came out of the co uh, cooperation agreement that included free school meals for uh, reception classes. That's going to start in September. One that is hot off the press as we record is also the scrapping of the colour-coded scheme for grading the performance measures of different schools. And that has been scrapped after only being instituted, I think, for about a decade. It's it's not particularly old, but I think that again raises the question of how well Wales is doing at tracking the performance of its schools and then how that then feeds into improving school provision and teaching across the board. It's a very, very difficult thing. And I think the, the, the cultural memory of the point at which Wales abolished league tables is, and has continued simultaneously to not score particularly well in PISA, you know, the internationally recognised PISA rankings, continues to kind of cast a long shadow over policymaking in this field. And I'm not entirely sure that the Welsh Government has rolled the pitch sufficiently well for, in order for this scrapping of these performance measures to be perceived as a step in the right direction. I think it is that the instant reaction has been one that it is, again, shirking scrutiny over education in Wales. And that is potentially one to watch. So Jeremy Miles has been suspiciously, some might say, busy as an education minister, although he somehow has ambitions for greater, grander office. But I think this particular one, the one about the performance measures, I think that is one to watch because that might circle around to the Welsh Government, but also that raise the kind of spectre about educational standards in Wales. And if we as a country allow them to slip, then we do a disservice to all our learners in schools and uh, colleges and universities. Well, you know, speaking of busy ministers, we've also seen uh, busy economy ministers, busy health ministers and busy deputy ministers for social partnership. Speaking of which, we have finally seen the text now of the Social Partnership and Public Procurement Wales Bill, uh, which has been introduced to the Senate. We may talk about that in more length in an upcoming episode. Other big news is we've seen the delay to the renting homes uh, the, the implementation of the renting homes legislation, um, registered social landlords had a number of complaints or concerns about the implementation, implementation of that legislation. So that's been delayed again. That is a very old bit of legislation now that still hasn't seen force. Lots of concerns in the housing sector about that. In terms of health, we have seen after the rather damning report on Aspetic Line Chloid in Betacadolida, we've now seen an escalation of the status of Betacadolida University Health Board, something always to look out for. And... Uh, most positively and uh, most relevant for us, of course, here, there was the announcement of the expert panel on the devolution of broadcasting, of which our very own Richard Martin is a distinguished member. So I just wanted to put on record uh, for the pod. Congratulations, Rich. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the, the panel and what's going to happen with the, you on it? 
Um, so it'd be my pleasure, Matthew. Um, there are a panel of 11 experts and me. Um, I think we're going to look at an awful lot of things, but there, there are two strands to it that we're obviously going to look at the, the case for the devolution of broadcasting. And obviously, we've talked a lot with Bethan Syed um, here on the pod about former culture committee reports into this field and you know others you know, such as the IWA, formerly under Lee Waters and um, Angela Graham, did several reports on this subject. I'm really excited about the work. I have to say it's something that I think we, again, it's a structural question about the future, the way that the UK and the way that Britain um, works is how do we regulate our media on what level of control should and could the Welsh Government have in that regard um, and I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into the work but as yet I think it's fair to say we're relatively early days in this process so maybe it's something that we'll return to at some point in the future. Thank you Rich uh, and Kerry don't think we're we're letting you get away scot-free without your favourite moment of June. The North Wales, South Wales, into Wales flights won't be coming back. Were you pleased to see that? Yeah, really pleased. Um, and I think that's great credit to Lee Waters. I think he gets it, but we can't be flying such short distances and paying a huge amount of money. I think it was up to something like £4 million a year. Um, so really good to see that that money is going to go into other travel and projects that will facilitate North South Wales kind of integration should never have really gone on as long as it did. So really pleased to see that. And also credit to Lee and the announcement on climate change targets in uh, Wales, which we've met. It, it, it's positive. That side of what Wales are doing is looking a lot better than what uh, it was. But I think the one you mentioned for me, Matt, stands out. Betsy Cadwallader again in the news. And I think it's been mentioned in quite a few pods, you know, how... We put a flag up on a UK government building in Cardiff and there's uproar, there's petitions, et cetera, et cetera. But things which really matter, uh, I'm not trying to dismiss the UK flag on a building and things like that, but, you know, the Betsy Cadwallader story really does need far greater exposure in Wales. It's the special measures for how long taken out for maybe an election, some cynics might say, and now it's been, you know, being highlighted again. And at some point, we have to really have a, a really serious conversation, not within government and the health circles, because I'm sure that's happening, but the population of Wales need to see this kind of issue a lot more front and centre of what we're talking about. And it just isn't there, really, unless you look at Welsh Government announcements page. I didn't see it in mainstream media. Uh, I find that really still quite disappointing because... These are the better, better things of society that we want to get right and mean an awful lot to people. I didn't mean to bring everything down there, but it, it's one of those things where, you know, what we're trying to do is what to get people interested in these areas. And I think the issue with Betsy stands out head and shoulders. You know, it could be something we mentioned at the chatty pod month in, month out, and that's not a good place to be. Uh, one of the new things I'm trying to bring in on the end of the month review pod is what can we look forward to going forward in, in July? I've got the Royal Welsh show ahead. Matt, anything in the bay? Uh, so obviously, yes, Royal Welsh show starting uh, the 18th of July, I believe. Uh, you have got also in the centre, you've got the, fifth, the week of beginning the 5th of July, we've got a, a statement on the future legislative statement of the centre. 
Um, and also, I believe, a statement on the next bit of Senate legislation we can expect to see, which is the Historic Environment Bill. Uh, and then the following week, we've got statements on a fairer council tax and also on the Young Persons Guarantee. And we end the month with the Eisteddfod in Tregaron. So, you know, is there peace and, uh, peace and quiet in this context? Not if you live in Wales in July. Oh, how about you, Kerry? Uh, any plans for July? Anything we should be keeping our eye on? I, I haven't looked. The one thing I'm thinking about is, can I get to Wrexham this weekend for the resumption of independent marches? So I'm going to consider that. There's a three-test series for Wales in South Africa, which I will focus on most Saturdays. And then the Royal Welsh Show, if I can get there, I do like to attend. And then recess, and we'll see where we are. I'm sure... I'm sure we'll have some interesting pods during uh, July to focus my attention, gents. Thank you very much for listening to this week's edition of the Here I podcast. We have been joined, as always, by Richard Martin. Thank you very much, Rich. If people want to hear more from you on Twitter, where can they go? As always, at Mimosa Cymru. And as always, we have also been joined by Kerry Davis. Where can people find you on Twitter? I think I've got to check, but I think I've returned to Kerry the Viking. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Kerry. And if you want to hear more from me, Matt Hexter, you can go and find me on Twitter at Hexter101, H-E-X-T-E-R 101. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please don't forget to find us on Twitter and Facebook at HereIthPod or go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. Hi, my name is Sean. Here the team have kindly let me come back on the podcast to promote the Equal Power, Equal Voice Public Life Mentoring Scheme, which is a joint venture by some of Wales's leading equalities charities, those being Disability Wales, the Women's Equality Network Wales, the Ethnic Minority and Youth Support Team Wales, and Stonewall Cymru. EPEV is a cross-equalities mentoring programme that is designed to provide a safe and supportive environment you can work towards achieving your goals and realise your aspirations of taking part in public and political life in Wales. It's aimed at people who identify as disabled, as a member of the LGBT plus community, people from a BAME background and women. It's delivered through three primary strands. Those are personalised one-to-one mentoring, training sessions and workshops and a peer-to-peer support network. Now the scheme runs from September until April. We are currently looking for applications for the programme until July 10th. Now, a bit more about what's involved in the programme. One-to-one mentoring features highly successful people from across Welsh public life. This includes members of the Senate, members of Parliament, local councillors and council leaders, uh, people who are already well established on public boards in Wales, and senior leaders from across the private, public and voluntary sector in Wales. We also deliver bespoke training and workshops on political influencing, public speaking, campaigning and many other issues. These include how to become a political candidate, what is required to be an effective member of a board, uh, how to campaign for social change, how to be an effective communicator in a public sphere. And we also run things like trips to Westminster and the House of Parliament there and to the Senate. Along with this, we help participants in the programme develop a peer-to-peer support network with other participants to build those connections with people who are looking to take part in Welsh public life. The reason behind this scheme is that 
The groups represented by these four charities and the people taking part in the scheme are generally underrepresented in Welsh public life. If you look at the 2017 local elections in Wales, while over 20% of the population in Wales is disabled or identified as disabled, only 1.5% of candidates identified as disabled in that election, according to the BBC. We don't even know for the Senate how many members and candidates identified as disabled because that data is simply not held. 40% of people in Wales live in poverty and they generally don't think their rights are going to be respected or improved in the coming years. 5.6% of the population of Wales comes from an ethnic minority background, but only 1.8% of candidates in local elections in Wales come from a similar background, an ethnic minority background. And civil service representation rate of people from an ethnic minority background is just 2% in Wales. Again, that's compared with almost 6% of the population. If you look at women while things in the Senate might look decent. If you actually look at candidates for the local elections back in May, only 33% of candidates were women. And that's compared with, you know, over 50% of the population. So it's obviously not equal in that sense. 8% of LGBT plus people in Wales have avoided being open about their sexual orientation or gender identity because of the negative reactions that they face. And again, this affects their ability to take part in public life. And I think a lot of why this is important and why it's important to get people who have this lived experience into public life is encompassed in a, uh, a phrase from the disabled people's movement of nothing about us without us. And I think that really sums up what this program is about. It's about taking people who have that lived experience and getting them into decision-making roles where they can influence how policy is made, the decisions public bodies in Wales make the decisions companies and charities make, which impact these groups, where they currently don't have a seat at the table. And I think that's the key thing that's behind this programme. So again, as I said, we're looking for people who fall into those four protected categories to um, apply for the programme by July 10th, to take part for the second year of the programme. So if you would like to, put in an application, you can find us online at epev.cymru and find all the information there and how to contact us as well. So yeah, hopefully people will apply and good luck with your applications. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.